Hello and welcome to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm your host, Antonio Barbera, and today on the show we're going to be doing something a bit different. We've recorded 10 episodes so far, ranging from credit card advice to finding a mentor to the best stocks for 2019. And so as we record episode 11, we've decided to take our best clips of advice from those first 10 episodes and weave them together here. All of these clips come from longer episodes, so if you want to learn more about a particular topic, check out the full episodes on Wealth of Knowledge from wherever you listen to the show. You'll hear a range of questions either from me or from our co-host for that episode, along with answers from our guests, starting with U.S. News credit card expert Beverly Harzog and U.S. News Senior Editor for Personal Finance, Susanna Snyder, talking about credit. Most people think missing a credit card payment either isn't a big deal, or they think it's the end of the world and their finances are are never going to recover ever and they might as well just stop using credit cards altogether. I assume (laughs) the impact falls somewhere in between those two extremes. So sort of what, what message would you give to people uh, obviously, if, if it's before missing a payment, you would say try not to miss a payment. But what would you say to those people who have sort of they've already uh, they've already crossed that bridge? Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. Sometimes people think that that's not a big deal, uh, but it can become a big deal. <laughs> so when it happens, as soon as it happens, call your issuer right away, okay, and see if uh, you can get them first. You know, if you've got a good excuse, uh, see if you can have the late fee removed and see if you could prevent them from reporting it to the bureaus. Now, they usually won't do that until you're about 60 days late, Uh, but uh, that's not really a law. They can do it earlier. I wouldn't take that chance. Uh, I've talked with many people over the years who have had great success, uh, you know, calling their issuer and explaining what happened, because sometimes, you know, you're just going through a crisis or, you know, if it's just a one-time thing, your chances are very good that they're going to help you out, especially if you've got great credit. So jump on it immediately. And if you don't, I mean, that thing can spiral into a collection account. So you don't want to go there because then it really will wreck your credit. And if the late payment gets reported to the bureaus, the better your credit, the bigger your fall is going to be. So it really is a big deal. So pay attention to your your payments and do what it takes to pay them on time. And if you slip up, jump on it right away to fix it. As we wrap things up, I'll ask each of you, do you have a, sort of a last tip for credit card users that they can put into practice today to, to better their financial situation? Antonio, I would say the most important thing, and I mentioned this early on, is to build that foundation for great credit. And this is something that you have to take with you throughout your entire credit life. You need to pay all of your bills on time, that's 35% of the FICO score is your payment history. It's super important. You want to have a budget and you want to track your spending. And there are so many free ways to have a budget and track your spending. You know, there's just really no excuse not to do this. Some of them are kind of fun, too. And you need to pick um, you know, money management tools that work for you, that you feel comfortable with. You know, for me, um, I like Mint.com because I like, I'm very visual. I like pie charts. You know, if I look at a, uh, a bar chart and I see that, you know, I spent this much at Chili's that month, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, okay, <laughs> not going there for a while. <laughs> so that kind of thing keeps me on target, on track. So I do whatever you need to do because there's no one solution for everyone. That's great. Su- Susanna? 
Mine would be just don't ignore it. I think sometimes people think that if they throw their credit card in a drawer and ignore the balance and ignore the creditors who are calling them and the debt collectors, it'll somehow go away or somebody will forget that they owe this money. And unfortunately, that doesn't usually happen. So you have to figure out at some point a system to get your arms around your credit card debt. Do it sooner rather than later. The sooner you do it, the better off you'll be. So don't ignore it. Take steps to fix it if you're in credit card debt. Take steps to pay off your debt. Um, and you will find yourself better off than if you had just pretended like it didn't exist. Real estate mogul Ryan Surhant on picking a real estate agent. And so now as we talk about finding that first agent or maybe deciding to continue with an agent you've already used, as a buyer or seller, uh, do I want an agent who's too busy or not busy enough? I mean, the former is clearly doing something right, but they may not give me the, you know, the time of day when I need it, uh, while the latter is going to be more accommodating, but there's probably a reason they don't have any clients. Uh, so is there any sort of wisdom on that, on which, which is the better direction to go in for a, for a buyer or seller? Uh, you always want someone who's busy. You want someone who's busy because other people have entrusted them with work. If you go with someone who has all the time in the world just for you, that's because other people have not entrusted them with work. And if you want to get something done, hire someone who's busy. And if they're a good person and they're good at their business, they will make time for you. Are they going to pick up the phone if you call them 15 times a day? No. But don't call them 15 times a day, you, you cuckoo bird. Um, you, know, you have to respect busy people's time as well, and they will respect yours. And I think that's a pretty easy answer. So now, most of your chapters in Sell It Like Sirhant begin with fun anecdotes from your decorated history uh, selling properties. So using that template, can we <laughs> go, yeah, decorated history, I thought was a, a good way to phrase that. <laughs> using that template, uh, can we go through sort of a speed round of maybe fun anecdotes from your sales? If we, if we run through a couple of uh, questions, can you give quick responses? I will do my best. All right. So we're not going to ask you to name anyone. Obviously, we wouldn't do that. But can you describe your worst client? My worst client. Uh, I think my worst client is probably also my best client in that uh, it was a deal that I did you know, years ago at the beginning of my career. I talk about him in the book. I call him Mr. X. Mm -hmm. And it took me a year to close the first deal because he just wouldn't respond to me. You know, we wanted to find a property, we found it, didn't pick up the phone or answer an email for a month. Then he responded. Then he went to contract, but never sent the deposit for six months. Everyone's angry, everyone's upset. What's going on? Is this a scam? I don't even know what's happening. And then all of a sudden the deposit shows up. And then he doesn't close for another six months. And that's just the way that that guy does business and is by far the worst client for my health. Um, and that I've ever worked with, but he eventually closed and sold him other things and it turned out okay. So then the polar opposite of that, what was your quickest sale? My quickest sale ever was probably honestly still to this day, one of my first sales. I got a, a random email from a girl who is graduating uh, medical school in Michigan and her parents are flying in from Asia and uh, she, was, she had a job in New York and she was coming to New York to find an apartment and they were coming in on a Monday and she wanted to close by Friday. And that's really hard to do. 
whether you know if you have a loan or don't have a loan, you know, and if you're buying a condo in New York City, there's a board, you know, board package, you have to clear title, you have to get through everyone's schedules. But she came in on Monday, I showed her ten different apartments that were good. We narrowed it down to three, saw the other three again Tuesday morning. She picked the one she wants. We had an accepted offer by end of the day Tuesday, contracts out. They signed Wednesday morning, deposit money was wired, they set it up, they closed Friday afternoon, parents got on a plane and flew back to Asia and it was a million fifty. My first million dollar deal and it happened in the span of a week. It was completely insane. Wow. wow. Uh, the next one here, strangest property sold. And I'm going to say that I hope that it's the haunted brownstone you briefly mentioned in your book. Oh no, that's definitely not the strangest property <laughs> I sold. I mean, that was that was that was creepy. Um, uh, you know, I've sold a lot of weird things. Actually, on Million Dollar Listing season two, um, there was a property I sold on 62nd Street that was it was a co-op building, so kind of post-war, post-war, you know, brick building. Nothing too crazy about it. And this was four apartments that were combined, and all of the finishes were taken from a Gothic church in Spain. So you walked in. And everything was brown wood, red. There were pews. There were confessionals. Um, and then there were hooks everywhere for sex swing. And it was a swingers apartment that had a very interesting religious vibe. That, on the Upper West Side, which is predominantly Jewish, was by far the strangest, most difficult sale I've ever had. And is the, I'm curious, this takes it out of the speed round, but I'm curious, did you have to redo things or stage anything to be able to sell it? Every wall that wasn't covered in uh, wood paneling, we painted white. Okay. So we tried to make it as neutral as possible. And we sold it as a renovation project, to be honest. We, it was a very, very specific apartment. But they'd done the renovation a little while ago. And to anyone who was buying it, we just we showed it for the space. People thought it was funky and quirky, but we showed it for the space. We showed it you know, for the bones and the person who ended up buying it. Um, tore the whole thing out and built out a, you know, a classic modern new apartment. And then what are the biggest challenges you face today? The biggest challenges I face today are the unknown, to be honest. It's everybody wants to know what's going to happen in the market tomorrow. Everyone wants to know what's going to happen in the next election year of 2020. People don't want to make decisions. People are nervous about the future. People think that we've been in a rising market for too long. Shouldn't we have had another recession by now? Everyone's so nervous. Everyone's so worried. Everyone's so concerned about the future that it causes inaction. And when you're that concerned with the future, obviously nothing good is going to happen because you wake up afraid every day. And that's a lot of the country right now. And so that is my biggest hurdle is, is keeping people optimistic and positive that we live in an amazing country that, you know, we have the freedom of title like never before has the United States just taken your house because they decided to on a Tuesday. You buy homes in other countries and that, that can happen to you. Like that's a crazy thing that people don't focus on enough in, in the United States. Like you have freedom of ownership here, which is insane. You can own land and as long as you pay your bills, if you have a loan, you pay off your loan, and you're a good person, you will keep that forever and pass it down to children and no one will take it from you. You know, that's, that's an amazing thing that people forget a lot. All right, and last question here in this speed round. Uh, what's one thing a client can do to make your life easier? This is a great opportunity for you here, Ryan. <laughs> oh, man, just <laughs> listen to me. 
Listen to me. Use your ears and listen to the words that are coming out of my mouth. That is the number one thing that I ask of all clients. You've hired me. I'm a professional. I do this all day, every day for the last 10 years. I, I know what's best for you before you know what's best for you. Just listen. Just listen. A lot of people don't like to listen. They ask questions, but they're going to do their own thing anyway, and they're going to make their own decisions. Just listen to me and take my advice. I will not steer you wrong. And I think if more people did that with more real estate agents, we'd probably be in an even better market. U.S. News senior investing reporter John Devine and U.S. News investing reporter Corianne Hicks on beginner investors. And now this is the last question outside of uh, Corianne, outside of your excellent piece. But what's the best investing advice that you two remember getting uh, and how can others follow that same advice? I have two pieces of advice that were quite good. One was from my best friend's mother in high school and sort of brushed her off, but I remembered it. She said to... Hold on to the Google stuff. Don't yes. listen to your parents. Yes. <laughs> Karen, I should have known. Um, she told me that I should put away 15% of every paycheck and I'd be a millionaire by the time I retired and, and have it uh, 15% and put it in the stock market. So like a company plan 401k, I do not currently do that because that's a lot of your paycheck. But I do um, approximate that by going up a percentage point in what I donate to 401k each year. And if you get a raise, you should also go up a percentage point. That's a good rule of thumb. And it just forces some discipline on you that, you know, speaking personally, I wouldn't otherwise have. So it's good to automate that. And then the second piece of advice is uh, from my father. During the depths of the financial crisis, uh, I was freaking out. And uh, he told me this is the exact wrong time to sell. And, um, and that ended up being prophetic. But, uh, you know, just when there's blood in the streets, you know, that's when you should actually be buying if, if you have any money. Most people don't at that point. But... Because otherwise you lock in your losses and you, you doom yourself, really, to um, bad returns. Over time, things will get better and the markets will recover. Some good advice. Maybe I'll just re-say what he did. That's the best, best advice I've gotten. Um, <laughs> no, I think, can I say my best investing advice came from Nike and is just do it? Like, don't <laughs> let all these intimidating factors keep you away. If you get invested, start early, start young, and stick with it. You know, don't um, try to time the market or worry about doing it wrong so much as just not doing it all. That's, I think, the important thing for all investors is to just get your feet wet. And it's okay to make mistakes. I mean, hopefully they're minor. But if you need help, find resources like this podcast or usnews.com or advisors to, and books. There's so many resources out there. So don't let intimidation keep you away. Career expert Fran Hauser on confidence building at work. I think there's often a belief in the workplace and in life, quite frankly, that some people have confidence and others don't, and there's nothing that can be done about it. You're either born with confidence or you aren't. But I really like how in the book you note, true confidence comes from solid evidence of your previous successes, not ego. That's such a great simple explanation. How can workers build confidence in their decision-making abilities? 
Yeah, so that was actually when we got to um, to that part of the book. I'm so glad you liked that sentence, Antonio, because it was a really important sentence. Like when we when we wrote that, Jody Lipper was my writing partner on the book, um, and we thought a lot about this. We thought a lot about the difference between confidence and and ego. And I think we came up with this term, evidence based confidence. I haven't seen it anyplace else. I, I I'm not sure, but. It really comes from my own experiences and um, knowing like those moments where I wasn't feeling confident and I was feeling a little bit of imposter syndrome. Like there's a story I share in the book where when I was at Time Inc, we had a uh, we had a lot of new CEOs. We had like five new CEOs over the course of three years, and um, we had this one new CEO who wanted to pull together a meeting for the top 300 managers at the company. And he asked me and four other people to speak. And I was really panicking about this because I hadn't built a relationship with the CEO yet. And this was really going to be the first time that he was going to see me in action. And I was going to be speaking in front of the top 300 managers of the company. And so I was feeling really nervous. And I called my, my coach, MJ Ryan, who um, I've worked with for years, told her how I was feeling. And she said to me, she said, you know, Fran, I want you to visualize a talk that you've done previously that went really well. And I want you to think about the process that you used to prepare for it. And then picture yourself in the moment giving the talk. How did everybody look like the, you know, the looks on their faces after the talk when they came up to you and said, what a great job you did. And when I visualized it, that's what gave me, that gave me evidence-based confidence because I felt like, okay, I've done this before and I've done it well. I can do this again, you know, and I knew exactly the process that I used. I, I believe in process. I believe in like, if you have a process that works for you, like my, for example, I know that um, when I look at really good decisions that I've made in my life, the process that I've used is I've, I've taken in data and input, but then I go with my gut and that process works for me. It could be different for you. You know, it might be more head-based, heart-based, but just trusting yourself and thinking back on your life and your career and thinking back on those moments where you were successful and knowing that, okay, I, I can do this. I've done this before. I can do this again. U.S. News real estate editor Devin Thorsby and real estate expert Elise Glink on finding your first home. Another question you have um, in that, that fast pass in chapter one uh, the, the last question, how do I know I found the right home for me? Um, I know I loved your story in the book that talks about how you and your husband found your home. I guess, could you speak a little bit to that and kind of how um, people can interpret that feeling when they know that a home is right for them, kind of both the data matches up along with the feelings? So I think that people think that they can just go see like three houses and pick one. And I think that's because HGTV has three houses in every show, yep. <laughs> right? There's the totally wrong house. Then there's the possibly wrong house. And then, ah, here's the right house, right? So You need it, to be able to fit 10 minutes, you know, 10 minutes times three, and then you get to your half an hour show, and then you get to something else. Yeah. I know, right? It really sets up unrealistic expectations. So... Just to set the record straight, and I go into this ad nauseum in the book, I looked at over 125 houses before we bought the house we live in now. And I wasn't a real estate you know, expert the way I am today, but I, I learned as I went along and we changed suburbs and neighborhoods 
half a dozen times. We kept moving further out to houses we could afford, neighborhoods that were more affordable. I wanted more space. I figured if I was, I was a city kid, I had grown up in the city, and I figured if I was gonna leave the city to go move to the suburbs, I should have some garden. Like I wanted a garden. I wanted to be able to plant corn, as I said to my husband. He's like, how many acres are we buying? And I'm like, no, it doesn't have to be a lot of corn. It turns out that when you plant corn in the suburbs, it gets eaten. So, but I didn't know that then. I learned that, uh, another one of those lessons. But anyway, I, you know, it's different for everybody. But for us, first we had to each agree on what we wanted, right? And we actually created these wish lists that I talk about. and and the reality checks, and then we came together and we kind of merged our lists. And it was interesting to see what it was at the top of Sam's list versus my list. You know, I had things like, I was gonna work from home. I worked from home for, I wanna say 20 years. So I wanted space for an office and I wanted a working fireplace so I could write stories by the fire. It's not a very romantic to me. I needed a great kitchen, I love to cook. Um, you know, we, we didn't, you know, I wanted a yard so I could plant flowers and, oh, maybe we'd have some kids and they'd run around. And Sam wanted, because he was still working for a big law firm downtown at the time, wanted to be walking distance to a train station. Having these conversations is hard. And, you know, how do you know when, when it's right? When you go into a house, if you've looked at a, a ton, and you realize that as you're mentally clicking through your wish list and reality checklist, that You've, you're getting all your big things. And you look around in it and it pleases you. I mean, you have to look past decorating, right? Because they're taking all their stuff with you, with them. But, you, you know, f for most people, when you're hitting all those things in your list, as you're walking around, if you've seen 10 houses, 20 houses, 30 houses, something starts to click for you. And then you sit down on the couch in the living room and all of a sudden you can imagine your own possessions in this house around you. That's when you know, that feeling that you've settled in, this is a place that you can set down roots. It, it, it's peaceful, and you just realize that you're there. U.S. News senior investing reporter John Devine on best stocks for 2019. John, you've compiled a nice little list for us to go over as we start the new year. We're going to go over 10 of your best stocks for 2019. Next on the list, ever-present in the news these days with more and more privacy breaches is Facebook, yet you remain confident. I do, I do. It's not for the faint of heart, of course, but uh, I think that one of the old Wall Street sayings is uh, the time to buy is when there's blood in the streets, and uh, Facebook has certainly had its uh, you know little French Revolution moment going on with a lot of bad PR this year or in, in late 2018, but they have 2.2 billion users, and that's just something that's difficult to get over from a competitive perspective, and they're going to see any competitor coming a mile away. They saw Snapchat, for instance, coming. They offered to buy them out. Snapchat wasn't interested. They went public, and everybody hailed Evan Spiegel as, as a great genius, but then Zuckerberg started playing hardball and just simply iterated and copied uh, Snapchat service and stole a bunch of users from them, essentially. Not stole, but, you know. Um, Quote, unquote. Yes, uh, in a very legal way and, and ruined all their momentum. And, you know, it's just a, a show of force for how powerful they are. I think they are going to 
be forced, you know, either by regulators or just uh, uh, common sense to start shaping up a little bit, and uh, this stock will be a beneficiary of that. And you, you mentioned that they have plans to enter online dating and maybe start charging for the Facebook marketplace transactions, and these are other, other yes, areas where you see potential growth. That's a good point. Yes, I think that those um, could also be drivers of, of earnings in the future because all these data, online dating services are using Facebook's data anyways, you know, Tinder and Hinge and, and Bumble and all that. They, they are reliant on Facebook. So Facebook is smart to enter that market, I think. And with Facebook Marketplace, it's sort of like a Craigslist or eBay sort of thing that's a natural area for people to go um, to buy and sell things. And they haven't even started taking a cut of transactions. And I think they could start doing that. I mean, I, I don't want to get too much into Facebook specifically, but I, it's almost surprising they haven't done online dating yet. I, I feel like right. sort of the joke about Facebook was that that's why it was invented, really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To sort of be able to find people online. And, and now they're finally going to be able to, to, to sort of tackle this head on and, and grow a, from there. It's been a free service they didn't know they were offering for a while, maybe. U.S. News careers reporter Rebecca Koenig on the U.S. News Best Jobs of 2019 rankings. We'll start from number one. Great. Software developer, I think it's going to be clear to a lot of people why this takes the number one spot. Huge job growth in the technology sector for this, for this position. That's right. Uh, for the second year in a row, software developer is the top job on the U.S. News Best Jobs list. Um, extreme job growth is predicted about 30%. Um, the median salary crosses the 100K threshold that interests a lot of people. Um, and interestingly, software developer is one of the few top jobs that only requires a bachelor's degree in most cases. That means it's going to be more attainable for more people than some of the other best jobs. So this is why this is uh, topping our list. And so now I, I remember you wrote an article some time back for U.S. News about this very position and about the fact that it was a little bit more attainable for other, uh, for people, you know, maybe 10, 15 years into another career that want to, that want to change because of the positive attributes that this job has. Can you talk about some of the, the programs, if you recall, uh, that were available to somebody maybe mid-career? Sure. There has um, developed an entire industry around training people for technology careers. One thing follows the other. Exactly. So there are, there are plenty of opportunities for people to pick up these technical skills without going back and getting an entirely new formal degree. Um, some companies that offer classes of varying price points include General Assembly. Um, there are the online um, MOOCs, as, they, as they're called, offered by Coursera and edX, and those tend to be tied to a specific university. And then there are nonprofits that are offering programs for people who are, you know, low income or meet certain qualifications. One that I think is especially interesting is called Access Code, and that's offered in New York City. Um, and it's a training program that is free for workers. Um, and then if they get software jobs or other technology jobs, they pay the nonprofit back with a percentage salary share. So these opportunities range from a couple weeks to a couple months, um, and they're proving pretty popular among people who want to take advantage of this really hot job market in, in technology. Personal finance expert Chris Hogan on building wealth. Chris, when you talk about getting help, 
giving and getting help, let's talk about getting professional help. According to a study reference, the study that you uh, reference in your book, 68% of millionaires used a financial planner to achieve their net worth. When should someone consider professional help over just basic wise financial practices like spending less, budgeting, and investing in a 401k? I mean, the 25-year-old may say they'll wait until a major purchase is on the horizon or after a major life event like marriage. Do you mm-hmm. recommend speaking with a financial planner even sooner? Well, I think so. I mean, you know, looking at this, uh, as you said, 68% of these millionaires use an investment professional to help them along the way. Um, and I think that's that's the case, and that's a smart thing to do, right? If you need help, you want to talk to someone that has that knowledge. And so I think a young person reaching out and having a conversation as they set up their 401k, as soon as they get that first real job and they're eligible after nine months or a year, those are the typical waiting periods before you can enroll. But before you do that, yes, to definitely sit down, have someone review that, have them talk through. The stuff that you mentioned, though, the skills, the budgeting, uh, the attacking debt, the savings, I think those are things that we can do on our own. But I would say also, if you need help or guidance in that to find that information, whether it's through a book that you can get for free at a library or buying a book online or listening to a podcast or watching some YouTube videos, whatever it is, I think the importance is growing our knowledge, but not being too prideful to ask for help. This pride thing is real. Um, and I think too often times we want to just muscle through it and, and or you all heard this phrase, fake it until you make it. Right. This, this is a phrase that that phrase drives me crazy. Right. Because I think in, in financial areas, if you're trying to fake it until you make it, the problem is, is you won't make it uh, because you may be going down the wrong path or missing some options. Um, I worked with a gentleman that had worked at a I won't say the company, but had worked there for 22 years. Okay, the way that he was invested, as I looked at his 401k, he was essentially invested like he had put money in a certificate of deposit, or as I call them, certificates of depreciation because they don't keep up with inflation. Right. Uh, But he had invested so mildly and, 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 and with so much fear that I added it up and I never told him this, but I ran the numbers on it. He had missed out on almost $560,000 in interest and growth had he just been a, just, just a little bit more balanced and diversified in how he did it. So in that scenario, you know, you've got someone that missed out on money because they didn't get proper guidance. So I advise everybody, sit down with your investment professional once a quarter or at least twice a year. Take your 401k or 403b in, have them look at it and figure out, are there some small tweaks that can be made that could make big gains for you financially later? Thanks for listening to Wealth of Knowledge. Please subscribe to our podcast, rate it, comment on it. And if you have financial advice questions you'd like answered on future shows, please email wealthofknowledge at usnews.com. We'll review your emails, and we'll try to answer a few on an upcoming episode. Finally, if you'd like to read up on financial advice, check out money.usnews.com, where we have a wide range of information on personal finance, careers, real estate, investing, and more. For Wealth of Knowledge, I'm Antonio Barbera. See you next week.